0: We have several scripture readings tonight. The first is from Matthew, chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The second verse is from Acts 2, 1 through 4. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I do, uh, I do realize, of course, that uh, our service will overlap with the start of the World Cup. Um, uh, But just remember, it's soccer. So if you get there late, you won't have missed anything. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) sorry, soccer fans. I just had to. Just had to get that in there. Just um, I want you to watch. It'll be four to one by 15 minutes in. Imagine that your rich uncle gives you a shiny new car for Christmas, and he gives you the keys, the insurance, and the maintenance plan, and he says, "Fill it up with gas and drive it off." But he doesn't tell you whether or not you should put in diesel or regular. Uh, now, in our family, we have some personal illustrations that I will not share tonight about the difference between filling up with diesel or regular. <laughs> it does make a difference. Um, I'll say no more. But the question of how do we fill up, in doctrinal language, would would be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How do we fill our tanks, fill our souls with the blessed Holy Spirit. Now, all Christians agree that in the new covenant, God has provided a new resource for living the spiritual life, or or let me say that better, a new relationship, a new experience with the resource of the Holy Spirit. And if we could put that... uh, Uh, slide up about the old and new covenants. One of the things we saw a few weeks ago is that there's a marked difference between God's old covenant and God's new covenant. In the old covenant, God's law was on a tablet. In the new covenant, God's law was written on our hearts. In the old covenant, uh, God related to us in a more external way. In the new covenant, a more internal way. In the old covenant, God's spirit was on a limited few. In the new covenant, his spirit dwells in all of us. In the old covenant, God's spirit would touch a person and then withdraw. In the new covenant, God's spirit remains. And so every Christian uh, believes that this is one of the distinctive characteristics of the new covenant, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But how do we appropriate this gift? How do we fill up the tank? This is where good Christians disagree. And if we could switch to the consensual orthodoxy slide. At All Souls, we talk about this idea that there are primary and secondary beliefs. Some people call them first tier, second tier. Uh, Primary beliefs are the mere Christianity that we find in the creeds uh, that we read tonight. Uh, Those are what all Christians at all times and all places have always believed. And if you join All Souls, that's what we ask you to affirm and believe. Uh, There are a lot of very important things in the the second circle that matter a whole lot, uh, but upon which good Christians disagree. And this is one of them, the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit, the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as I shared with you, if you've been following us this summer, originally I thought we were going to spend kind of a nice, quiet walk through the first part of Matthew. Um, And I was kind of all set for that and have sensed that the Holy Spirit, when we got to the passage about the baptism of the Spirit, was saying, no, I want you to sit here and think about the baptism of the Spirit probably for the summer. And uh, I have felt considerable anxiety about that. Um, I was rather looking forward to Matthew. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll certainly get back to that. And, and, and yesterday afternoon, I had a little, little downtime and... And I just went out on my back porch, and I tried to pray, why is this that, why do I feel so anxious about this series, about this sermon? Uh, why am I envying my commentaries on Matthew and wishing we were there? Um, and I took out a, a book I wrote in 1999 called The Word Empowered Church. Um, you can get it on Amazon for a quarter now. Um, Laughter and the guy in the back doesn't look anything like me. Um, but I was reading, and it's interesting to read stuff that you wrote a long time ago. And what I was trying to do at that time was, was say, hey, this is kind of, I didn't have the language of a secondary issue and all that, but I was trying to say, good Christians have come at this differently, and we should all kind of learn from each other and get along, and, and uh, won't that be nice? And uh, frankly, it didn't work out very well. Um, uh, for the most part, uh, I remember, uh, I'd totally forgotten this, I, I had been asked to speak at a conference of where all the, not all, but a lot of the pastors from my denomination were present, and I talked about this, and uh, essentially uh, blew up the denomination. <laughs> for for uh, uh, Gary was on staff at the time, uh, for quite a while, um, and the big debate became essentially: Could someone who believed as I did even be a part of the denomination? Um, now, I will tell you that about twelve years later, the president of the denomination uh, wrote me and thanked me for the book and said that they had come to embrace that belief, which is which is nice. But the the church uh, that I was pastoring at the time, uh, where I was trying to create a community where both these views could kind of come together and support and bless and nurture each other. I never felt like we did that. Never felt like we really got there. And so talking to you about it, um, uh, I I realize it taps into some old wounds for me. Um, So I'll just acknowledge that. Um, You can pray for me as we go through this. I hope that I'm not doing all of this just out of my woundedness, fear, and fallenness. Um, However I might be. So, oh well. Last week we talked about uh, the Pentecostal charismatic view of the baptism of the Spirit, of of how to fill up the tank. And I noted that uh, a half a billion Christians in the world today uh, understand the work of the Holy Spirit this way. It's the most rapidly growing part of the body of Christ around the world. You realize, of course, that America is no longer the center of, of the church Uh, Now the two-thirds world is sending missionaries to America to save us. Um, And the place where the church is exploding uh, is often very Pentecostal and charismatic. And here's a couple of the core understandings. One, Jesus' disciples were born-again believers before the day of Pentecost. Two, nevertheless, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the baptism of the Spirit. Three, on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized in the Spirit and spoke in tongues. Four, Christians today, like the apostles, should ask Jesus for the baptism of the Spirit. And five, this pattern, where people are born again and then later baptized in the Spirit, is seen in several other places in the book of Acts, so it should be normative for us. So, if you ask someone coming from the Pentecostal or Charismatic uh, tradition, how do I fill up my tank they will say something like this, and I'm quoting from uh, a little column in Charisma Magazine, which is sort of uh, the Time or Newsweek of, uh, of the charismatic movement. Um, the editor writes There are two separate experiences we can have with God one is salvation, uh, in which we receive God's amazing forgiveness and new nature. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. The second experience is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit, who's already in us, overflows. Baptized in the Spirit means completely immersed in the Spirit. Uh, he fills us with the Holy Spirit in order to empower us with His ability. When we have this experience, the Holy Spirit's power fills us so full that He spills out. And when we're baptized in the Spirit, unusual gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, listed in 1 Corinthians twelve eight to 10 begin to be manifested in our lives, and we experience His supernatural power. Here are the simple steps you can take to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One, prepare your heart. The Holy Spirit is holy. He's compared to a fire, which means he purifies sin. Make sure you've confessed all known sin and made your heart ready for his infilling. Two, ask Jesus to baptize you in the Spirit. You don't need to jump through hoops. He's eager to answer your requests. Jesus is the one who baptizes, so ask him. Three, receive the infilling. Begin to thank him for this miracle. Four, release your prayer language. At The moment you're filled with the Spirit, you'll receive the ability to speak in your heavenly prayer language. Five, step out in boldness. After you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, one of the first things you will notice is a new boldness. Okay, so that is uh, how a large part of the body of Christ understands how you fill up the tank. Now, tonight I want to look at, at, at another way uh, of, of understanding this. We're going to call it the Reformed view. In other words, we're, we're going back to the teachers of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we might call this the traditional evangelical view. I gave you some books last week if you wanted to read more. Uh, the best book uh, on, on this understanding of the baptism is John Stott's Baptism in Fullness. Um, also, if you like theology at all, I'd suggest you get Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and there's a chapter in there on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he presents the Reformed position. Now, the Reformed understanding of Spirit baptism begins at the same place as the Charismatic understanding. Yes, the Spirit is the mark of the new covenant. Yes, Jesus promised to baptize the disciples who were believers later. Yes, that happened at Pentecost. But here's where the two traditions break off. The Reformed position argues that for believers after Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. In other words, every Christian is baptized in the Spirit when they believe. Now, why do Reformed Bible teachers understand it this way? Well, one of the key verses is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And if you have your Bibles, you might turn there, and if you don't, I'll I'll read it. Paul is describing the unity of the believers uh, that they enjoy because of the Spirit. And he says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now that's so important, I'm going to read it one more time. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Now that can't be a reference to the day of Pentecost because neither Paul nor the Corinthians were there. But he says that they'd all been baptized in the Spirit when they became members of the body of Christ, his church. Notice the word all. Everyone experiences the baptism of the Spirit when they become members of the body of Christ. John Stott says this, The gift of the Holy Spirit is a universal Christian experience because it is an initial Christian experience. All Christians receive the Spirit at the very beginning of their Christian life. And then Stott points out that nowhere in the New Testament are believers taught to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Rather, he says, and all Reformed teachers would agree, that the writers, the apostles who wrote the New Testament, assume that the believer is a spiritual person, has some degree of the Spirit, and exhorts you to live accordingly. Uh, Romans 8, 9, for example. Paul says, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit, since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Galatians 5, 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us all walk by the Spirit. So, these verses aren't describing two levels of believers, Those who are spirit baptized Christians and those who are not. Uh, They describe all believers as people who have received the Spirit and now live by the Spirit. I heard it put like this one man wrote, to call someone, uh, to to refer to a spirit filled Christian versus a normal Christian is like calling someone a Scandinavian Swede. Uh, If you're Swedish, you're Scandinavian. And in the Reformed understanding, every Christian to one degree or another has some degree of the filling of the Spirit. Now, isn't it true that the disciples who were believers were baptized in the Spirit after they believed? Well, it certainly is, but the One of the ways of understanding how that happens is that the disciples were living under the Old Covenant until the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And on Pentecost, they transitioned from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And so the fact that they experienced the baptism in two stages was due simply to historical circumstances. You see that they're living in a unique transitional period between the Old and the New. So of course they believed before. For them it was a two-stage for us, it's more like what happens in, uh, at the end of Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter gets up, preaches an evangelistic sermon about 3,000 yeah, 3, people believe. And then he says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's happening there? There, the 3,000 who respond in faith receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit at the same time, just as we do. And so the argument goes, this is the norm for the new covenant. But what about those secondary experiences that we saw last week in the book of Acts? What about the Samaritans? Remember that story in Acts uh, 5-17, to Philip goes down, he preaches the gospel in Samaria, many believe, and then months or weeks later the apostles come down, lay hands on them, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they uh, pray in tongues. Well, Reformed Bible teachers call this the Samarian Pentecost and say that this is, is a time when the Holy Spirit initiated the new covenant, not with the Jews, but with Uh, half-Jews and half-Gentiles. And so they were also living in a unique historical transition period, and their experience shouldn't be seen as normative for us. Now, the second example uh, is Acts 19, 1-7. You remember that story? Paul had begun his third missionary journey. He goes to Ephesus. He meets a dozen guys who Luke calls disciples. Uh, They've been baptized into John's baptism, but they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul lays hands on them, they're baptized in the Spirit, and they speak in tongues. Now, isn't that an example of a second work of the Spirit? Well, Reformed teachers usually uh, say that the Ephesian disciples were not really believers until Paul came and prayed for them. Uh, They just knew the baptism of John, and so their experience shouldn't be normative either. Now, heavy sledding, let me back up. Let's summarize Um, the Reformed view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One, Paul says that we're all baptized in the Spirit when we become members of the body of Christ. Two, the New Testament never commands a believer to seek the baptism of the Spirit, but assumes that all believers have received the gift of the Spirit and urges us to live accordingly. And three... The examples in the book of Acts of baptism in the Spirit as a second experience after conversion are due to the unique transitional nature of living in the time when the old covenant gave way to the new covenant. These examples are not normative for us today. Okay. Well, if I'm not supposed to seek the baptism of the Spirit, how am I supposed to fill the tank? Well, the answer, Reformed teachers say, is Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That even though our baptism in the Spirit is a one-time event at conversion, we must continually appropriate the filling of the Holy Spirit. So one baptism, many fillings. And silly illustration last week, but we'll do it again. So if the Pentecostal understanding is you're saved, you receive the Spirit, but then there is a subsequent work where you have a real uh, a special filling of the Holy Spirit, then you live an empowered life. The traditional, I hate that, but I don't know what I can do about it. The, the Reformed would say that as soon as you're saved, everybody has some measure of the Spirit, and then you're filled with the Spirit. Then you're filled with the spirit some more. Then you're filled with the spirit some more. Then you go to college and lose your faith. And then you're filled with the spirit again. Then you have children and don't have a devotion for three years. And then then you're filled with the spirit again. You get the you get the idea. But the the point that somebody made, I think it's Wayne Grudem. He he says, uh, I actually think. He taught on this at the conference where I was almost thrown up. Is he, um, he says, is, "Is that balloon filled with air?" Well, yeah. now is it filled with air? Yeah? Now you know, you, could, you can become more and more filled with the spirit. And by the way, that's my prayer for you, is that wherever you are tonight, you'll go out like this. You'll want more and more fullness in your life? Well, when I was looking for the classic, and I have to let the balloon go, I've been trying to figure out how I could do it kind of uh, nonchalantly, but uh, I don't know. If Charisma Magazine is the gold standard of the charismatic movement, uh, Dr. Bill Bright with Campus, we don't call it Campus Crusade anymore, right? We call it, what do we call it now? Crew which stands for crusade, which is just as repulsive to Islam- Islamic people. I don't know why, but anyway, uh, Crew, the founder of Crewe, uh, wrote a little track that I read in college that I've often referred to uh, uh, about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was reading it again today, and one thing I noticed, what he, he was obviously writing in a day when the charismatic renewal was creating a lot of discussion, um, and there's a little bit of that you'll see here, but he writes a very clear uh, little tract on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Dr. Bright said, Millions of Christians are begging God, as I once did, for something which is readily available, just waiting to be appropriated by faith. They're seeking some kind of emotional experience, not realizing that such an attitude on their part is an insult to God, a denial of faith. But faith is the only way you can please God. Though you are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith, and faith alone, it is important to recognize that several factors contribute to preparing your heart for the filling of the Spirit. First, you must desire to live a life that will please the Lord. You have the promise of our Savior. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Second, be willing to surrender your life totally and irrevocably to our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, confess every known sin. Which the Holy Spirit calls to your remembrance, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us. I call this process spiritual breathing. Just as you exhale and inhale physically, so you also breathe spiritually. And I probably think about that most days of my life and have since uh, nineteen eighty when I first read his little tract. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, however, is not a once and for all experience. There are many fillings, as is made clear in Ephesians 5.18. In the Greek, the meaning is clear. The command of God means to be constantly and continually filled. He has a lot lot more good things to say about that. So the Reformed understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit, in some ways, is not all that different from the charismatic when when you read them side by side. Um, now, what do we do with the testimonies of millions of Christians who have had a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit after conversion that has transformed them, empowered them for ministry, communicated the assurance of God's love? What do we, how do we describe those? Charismatic believers would call them the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What, what would a Reformed person say about that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with language. Uh, as someone in the Reform camp, I call these deeper works fillings of the Spirit. I don't call them the baptism of the Spirit because I think the baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion. And Some fillings can be small, some can be great, uh, resulting in fresh encounters and the release of spiritual gifts. I think they can happen many times in a person's life. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened to me uh, two weeks ago in the prayer chapel. We have a little time Wednesday mornings at 8.30 and then at 4 where we pray for the sermon. Love people to come and pray for the sermon. Drop in whenever you can. Um, And I I wondered if I should tell you this story because it's about an experience I had with the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I wondered if I should tell you is because usually when a preacher tells you a story from his life about something good that happens, he wants it to happen to you. And so I thought, if I tell you about this experience, are you going to really think after uh, about 60 minutes of teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit that my real agenda is to get you to have an experience? I hope not, because it isn't. Let me tell you the experience, and then um, we'll kind of back up. So we were praying. We were praying for the service. We were praying. Usually I come in. I, I start preparation on Tuesday. I come in. I say, I think this is where we're going. We just prayed about it a little bit. And uh, after a while, got real quiet. Uh, I, I said, uh, you know, I, I feel the peace of the Lord here, but I also feel like I'm about ready to go to sleep. Uh, this is a little too peaceful. I feel like I've gone off the air. And so we were quiet, Then two people, there were about five of us there, Bobby Wisman kind of leads the time. Two people came over, laid hands on me, and prayed for me. One of them prayed in their spiritual language. And a couple things happened. Uh, I felt a physical uh, manifestation of, of the spirit. My body began to tremble. Uh, I began to interpret uh, the, uh, the the tongue as the person prayed. And someone wrote that down. And uh, I've spent a lot of time the past two weeks looking at some of the interpretation that came up. Last week in prayer, we all looked at it and talked about what we thought God might be saying. Uh, And for the next three or four days, I did feel a a, a renewed spiritual and physical vitality and greater energy for the work of the gospel. Now, what would I call that? Uh, I think I'd, I'd just call it being filled with the Spirit. I think it was similar to 2 Timothy 1.6, where Paul says, Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. I think that somehow my gifting was fanned into flame through the laying on of hands. Now, what do I want you to do with that story? Well, if we weren't doing consensual orthodoxy and I was taking a hard position on this and telling you the right way that you should believe, we would do one of two things. I would tell you that I want all of you to seek an experience like that and encourage you that way. Or I would tell you is beware of any experience like that and don't you dare try it. And what I'm saying instead is the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He works any way he wants to work. Uh, I want to give you the freedom to experience the Spirit, however He works in your life, and I want you to give me the freedom to experience the Spirit, and however He works in my life. I don't want us to judge each other. I don't want us to manipulate, coerce, and force each other. I want us to be open to the many different ways the Spirit works in our body. That's my vision for how this plays out. The important thing is that we're yielded to the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and deeply in love with God through the Spirit. Now, as I did last week, uh, I wanted to end with a critique of the Reformed understanding. Last week, we we looked at a critique of the Charismatic understanding. Here are a couple of strengths. First, I believe that the Reformed view avoids the harm that comes from teaching a two-class Christianity. And and I know that... um, I have some wonderful friends, and in our church we have wonderful folks who are on the charismatic side of this, and their intent is never to say there are two classes. Uh, That's never the desire. Uh, However, it's often perceived that way. And uh, what I think the reform view does, instead of dividing believers into spirit-filled and non-spirit-filled, it just sees all Christians as filled with the Spirit to various degrees, with the goal of the balloon continually expanding. I also think that the Reformed view of the baptism uh, does a little better job with the New Testament texts in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians uh, about life in the Spirit. Uh, I I think it it reflects that every believer receives the Spirit and we're then to live accordingly. Now, how about weaknesses? Well, as I was doing my research on this, I came across this article uh, by uh, Gordon Fee. I, I think I mentioned him last week. Gordon Fee is uh, probably the, the theologian who's writing about the Holy Spirit, whose books are most respected among most evangelicals today. Um, he was an ordained uh, Pentecostal pastor and was raised and experienced the, the Pentecostal tradition. But in the 80s, he changed his view, and you can imagine that was challenging, being a a theologian in the Pentecostal tradition. He decided, uh, actually, I think I take the Reformed view now, and he wrote a paper about it. Well, what he says at the end of the paper, and I think this is very helpful, and I tend to agree with it, he says he thinks that the Pentecostals got the timing wrong, but the experience right. In other words... He feels that the Reformed way of dealing with the text that I've gone through tonight is is fair to the text. Uh, That the baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion. There are many fillings afterward. But he feels that in the process, Reformed people have often forgotten just who the Spirit is and and how he desires to be known and experienced. And I've got to say, I, I think that's a fair critique. And I know I've given you a lot of quotes tonight, but I'll give you one more. Um, Dr. Fee says, Within the Reformed churches, there grew up the idea that the Spirit was a quiet, unobtrusive presence. For the earliest Christians, it was quite the opposite. The Spirit was always thought of as a powerful presence. Indeed, the terms Spirit and power are nearly interchangeable. For them, life in Christ meant life in the Spirit, and that meant life characterized by power, not simply some quiet, pervasive force. The coming of the Spirit had evidence. Life was characterized by a dynamic quality. Evidence evidence is often as not by extraordinary phenomena. The Spirit was not someone you believe in or about. He was powerfully experienced in the life of the church. I think that's a, a fair critique. Now, one last critique of both the Reformed and the Charismatic positions. Um, when uh, when I wrote that book, i just finished doing a doctoral degree, and a lot of my dissertation had to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts. And uh, I spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours, reading different arguments about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in my sense, at the, at the end of, 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 really it's been 20 years Or actually, over 25 years now that I've been exploring this and thinking about it, is I think both Reformed and Charismatic Christians take the sovereignty and mystery out of the Spirit's work and treat the Bible like a math book. And that they look at it, they find a few verses, and they say, That's how he works. He'll always work that way. I don't think you ought to do that. Pentecostals look at the book of Acts and say, that's how the Spirit always works. Believe, baptize, speak in tongues. Reformed, look at the book of Acts and say, that was once, never happened again. And I'm saying, how on earth do you know what the Holy Spirit will do today? I mean, My favorite verse about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is uh, 1 Corinthians 12. It's down around 13. Paul tells, or a little before that, Paul tells the Corinthians that the Spirit gives out his gifts to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. Now that's why I think it's, it's so important that you hear me saying, I speak in tongues more than you all. I love to speak in tongues. I love to be prayed over in tongues. I love to interpret tongues. I'm a flaming charismatic. I don't care if that happens to you. I care deeply that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that you love the Holy Spirit, that you know the Holy Spirit, that you walk in the Holy Spirit. If God leads you to pursue these gifts this way and you want me to pray for you, I'll be glad to pray for you. I'm not going to hut you down and put you in a room and lay hands on you and get you to do something you don't want to do. This is between me and the Lord and your walk with the Holy Spirit's between You and the Lord. And what I I plead with us to be able to do is to try to step back from this formulaic, it happened this way then, it will always happen this way again. What I want to suggest to you is as he wills. You have no idea how he will work in your life. In the very moment, I tell you, it must happen like this. You must do this. You can't do this. I think I've quenched the Holy Spirit. I think my role at the end tonight is just to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And did you notice, and I just thought this was very, very interesting with all the baggage that I have and all that's gone on in the past hundred years between these two movements and how much they've thrown bombs at each other and how many relationships have been broken by it and how many churches have split over it, that at the end of the day, when the two leaders of the two movements describe being filled with the Holy Spirit, they say almost exactly the same thing, except for tongues. They say, surrender your life, get right with God, yield fully, and ask Him to fill you, and step out in boldness. Now, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Let's pray.